Well, today we come to the end of the second vision cycle in Revelation. The main portion of the book of Revelation from chapter 4 and verse 1 to chapter 22 and verse 5 is structured around seven such vision cycles, each of which tells the same story from seven different angles. And it is the story of the tribulation of this age, terminating in the return of Christ, the final judgment, and the ultimate inheritance and reward of the saints. Let me take you back to the first vision cycle, which was the seven seals from Revelation chapter 6. The seven seals drew its imagery from those seven seals that secured the scroll which the Lamb took from the right hand of Him who sits on the throne in chapter 5 and verse 7. The Lamb broke the seals and John saw these scenes of judgment unfold upon the earth during this age, culminating in the sixth seal, which was the coming of the day of wrath at the end of the age. And then in Revelation 8.1, in the seventh seal and the silence in the aftermath as heaven prepared for the final judgment. And between the sixth and the seventh seals, there was Revelation chapter 7, an interlude regarding the church, showing us the protective sealing and the ultimate salvation which the church enjoys through the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, then in Revelation 8-2, we entered into the second of the vision cycles. The first one being completed, we moved immediately into the second of the vision cycles. And this second vision cycle is patterned after the plagues of Egypt, resulting in Israel's exodus from slavery and bondage in this world, and the fall of Jericho, resulting in Israel's entrance into the promised land. And that's the backdrop of these seven trumpets that we've been studying for the last several weeks. With each trumpet blast, God unleashes a plague of judgment upon the kingdom of this world. And finally, when the last trumpet sounds, when the seventh trumpet blasts, the great city will fall, and according to Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of this world shall become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Now, we have spent three weeks so far studying the first six trumpets from Revelation 8 and 9. In the first week, we looked at the first four trumpets from verse 2 to verse 13, which mirrored the seventh and the first and the ninth Egyptian plagues, respectively. Those first four trumpets displayed God's shaking of the heavens and the earth with judgments over the natural realm. We saw the earth, the seas, the rivers and springs, and the heavens above. In the second week, from the first half of Revelation chapter 9, we covered the fifth trumpet, which mirrored the eighth Egyptian plague, the locust plague. And it symbolized God's judgment in giving the unbelieving world over to demonic oppression during this age. The third week, from the second half of Revelation chapter 9, if you're following along with me, which mirrored the tenth and the final Egyptian plague, the death of the firstborn, we saw depicted graphically the end of the age, when God will give the unbelieving world over to demonic deception, 
such that they believe the lies of the beast and follow him in this final rebellion, this final apostasy against God. And their end, as we will see today, will be death and judgment from the hand of Christ. But before we came to the seventh trumpet, John again saw an interlude with regard to the church. Visions of the church in this age, this time in Revelation 10, 1 to eleven thirteen, showing the church in its prophetic role during this age. What does the church do while these judgments are being poured out, while the trumpets are sounding? What is the church's role before the last trumpet sounds? And we saw that the answer is, we have received a prophecy from heaven, this book, And it is our task to bear witness to this word in the power of the Holy Spirit to our neighbors and our nations until the last trumpet sounds. That captured our attention for the last three weeks. But now it's time to return and to complete the vision cycle of the seven trumpets. And so we come now to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 14, where we read that the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. If you remember back to Revelation 8.13, after the fourth trumpet judgment, John saw an eagle flying in mid-heaven and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And with the eagle's announcement, we were alerted to the fact that the three Final trumpet judgments are different and distinct from the first four. The devastation is ratcheted up as we get towards the end. The woe and the curse of God are being unleashed upon the wicked of the earth. This threefold woe pronounced upon the last three trumpets has the effect of separating them from the first four in that the first four were natural judgments, or rather judgments upon the natural realm, natural catastrophes that strike the earth, affecting every realm of the earth, the earth, the seas, the rivers, the heavens, and affecting both believer and unbeliever alike. Saints and sinners are swept away in floods during this age. An earthquake shakes the foundations of Haiti, and believers and unbelievers alike die in the rubble. But the last three judgments bring down God's supernatural judgment. In them, God makes a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. The saints are not given over to the demons of the fifth and sixth trumpets. Only those who are unsealed, Revelation 9.4. And only those who are unrepentant, Revelation 9.20 and 21. And as we'll see today, when the last seventh trumpet sounds, all the nations will be judged and the saints will be granted their reward. Christ will separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, the righteous from the wicked. The first woe was the oppression and the misery that was inflicted by the demons from the pit who devoured men's souls like locusts devour a field. That was the fifth trumpet. The second woe was death by deception as God gave the unbelieving world over to believe the lies of the demons who gallop across the world like a cavalry charge and will perish in his judgment. 
Then after an interlude of visions concerning the church in 10.1 to 11.13, in verse 14, we return to the theme, the second woe has passed, the third woe is about to begin, and by the end of the third woe, all the wicked of the earth will have everlastingly perished in the fires of God's judgment. So the third woe is here, and we read it in verse 15. The seventh trumpet sounds. And just as in the days of Joshua, when the seven trumpets sounded the seventh time and the kingdom of Jericho fell, so it will be that when the seventh trumpet sounds on the last and great day of the Lord, that the kingdom of this world will crumble to the ground and the kingdom of God will be forever established in the land. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So this is it. This is what we've been building towards for those four weeks now that we've spent in the seven trumpets. This is the conquest of the new Canaan. The parallels between Israel's conquest of Canaan in the days of Joshua and the conquest of the new Canaan in the days of Christ are many and multitude. I just want to give you four to show you that this is what John's, this is what John's doing. He's got, he's got Israel's conquest of Canaan set up as the backdrop and, backdrop and the format by which he is understanding Christ's conquest and the establishment of the kingdom of this world. Four parallels. Number one. Just as God promised the physical land of Canaan to Abraham's physical offspring, even so, God has promised the whole world, the new heavens and the new earth, the renewed creation, He has promised to Abraham's spiritual offspring. That is, all those Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free, who are justified by faith in Christ. You can read about this in Romans 4, 13, 9, 8, and Galatians 3, 29. Parallel number two. Just as old covenant Israel could not possess that land of promise that was promised to Abraham, God promised it to Abraham in Genesis 15, but he said, you will not possess it yet. Because the sin of the Amorite is not yet complete. So evidently, the land was going to fill up with sins until a certain tipping point at which time God's judgment was going to fall and the land would be handed over to his people. That's why God told them in Genesis 15, Abraham, all that you see, all of this land is going to be yours, but you will not possess it in your lifetime. You will be a sojourner and a stranger in this land because the sin of the Amorite is not yet complete For 400 years, your people will be in bondage and slavery in Egypt, and then I will bring them out and I will give them the land. Well, I would say even so, we will not and cannot enter the land of our inheritance until the sin of the Amorite, so to speak, is complete. And the land will vomit them out in the language of Leviticus 18. Third parallel. On the eve of the battle of Jericho, Joshua chapter 5, Joshua, it says, lifted up his eyes and he saw a man standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua asks him, are you for us or for our enemies? 
Very interestingly, the man says, neither. But I have come as the commander of the army of the Lord. Watch this. At his statement and his appearance, Joshua fell down on his face in worship. Now that's very interesting because twice in the book of Revelation, we haven't gotten there yet, but you'll see it twice, John is so awestruck by the angelic messenger that brings him the vision that he tries to worship the angel. Twice. Revelation 19.10 and Revelation 22.8. And twice, John is rebuked with the very same words, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. You worship God. No angel, in other words, would dare to receive the worship that is due unto God alone. Every angel knows that that's precisely the reason Satan and his demonic host were cast from heaven and condemned to everlasting punishment in the first place. You don't receive worship no matter how glorious you appear to men. And yet, this figure, this heavenly figure who identifies himself as the commander of the Lord's hosts has no problem receiving Joshua's worship. In fact, he says to Joshua the very same words that the Lord said to Moses from the burning bush. Joshua, take your sandals from off your feet because the the ground where you're standing is holy. You're on holy ground. How did it get to be holy ground? The Holy One had come. Clearly, this heavenly warrior is divine. He is the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate, that is before he was incarnated in man, the pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus. And he, and he commands an innumerable host of angelic warriors And he appears on the eve of the battle of Jericho in order to inform Joshua that the battle belongs not to Joshua's military strategy nor to Israel's military strength, but it belongs to the strength and the wisdom of the Lord his God. In other words, it was Jesus who conquered the land of Canaan and gave it to his old covenant people. And even so, as we read further into the book of Revelation, it will be Jesus who appears on the eve of the great battle, riding a white horse and leading the armies of heaven into war to conquer the new Canaan and to give the land as an everlasting inheritance to his redeemed. The battle still belongs to the Lord. Fourth parallel. Just as in Joshua's day, the city of Jericho and everything in it was devoted to destruction, while Rahab the woman of faith, and her whole family was spared and were granted an inheritance in the land together with the people. Even so, when the seventh trumpet sounds and the kingdom of this world falls, every inhabitant of the world, the city, and everything belonging to this world will perish as by fire being devoted to destruction. You can read about it in verse 18. Everything but the people of faith who will be spared from the judgment that is to come and will be granted an everlasting inheritance in the land. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
When the seventh trumpet sounds, the great city will fall, Canaan will be conquered, and God will give the land to his people as an everlasting inheritance, the inheritance promised to Abraham and to all who, like Abraham, belong to Christ by faith. So the sounding of the seventh trumpet and the conquest of the new Canaan provokes a response in heaven. The 24 elders who are before the throne break out in song. Verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, or who is, and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. And for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So the 24 elders, they appear again. We saw them in chapters 4 and 5, and here they are again. Remind you, I believe them to be angelic representatives in heaven of the church on earth. Okay? Angelic representatives in heaven of the church on earth. They are so awestruck by the victory won by God in Christ that they've just seen that they arise from their thrones, which surround the throne, chapter 4 and verse 4, and they throw themselves on their faces in the worship of God. So the victory won by God at the consummation of history will be so breathtakingly glorious as to cause all of heaven to rise to his feet and fall on their faces. And in the song that they sing, they praise the Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was. It sounds like something's missing from that. Who is and who was. And we've been trained so far in Revelation to expect and who is to come. And so the fact that they no longer praise him who is and was and is to come shows us that the to come has already come and it now is. God has taken his great power and has begun to reign when the seventh trumpet sounds. In other words, there's no more history to come. It is. It is now. For eternal ages to come, God will reign and there will be no more rivals to his throne. No longer will his people pray as Jesus taught us to, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom Come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven because God's kingdom, when the seventh trumpet sounds, will have come. It will have arrived and the rebellion will have been obliterated and heaven and earth will forever join in the glad obedience of the Lord God the Almighty. It's the future. Come from the perspective of the 24 elders. The remainder of the song, verse 18, then looks back from their perspective of fulfillment From our perspective, it's still future. From theirs, it has happened, which is why they're on their faces. And it looks back upon the events that transpired when the seventh trumpet sounded. So, for long centuries of human history, mankind has pondered the question, how's the world going to end? Everybody's taken their stab at it. Jews, Christians, Muslims, Hollywood, everyone's taken their stab at it. And here in the course of one verse we have a pretty detailed description of what it's going to look like. And this description is going to be filled out in further visions to come. So what we see in verse 18, it's where we're going to spend 
the remainder of our time this morning are five events that will mark the end of the world when the seventh trumpet sounds. The first event listed by the elders is the final and climactic raging of the nations. The nations will rage. Now, the nations have been raging and rebelling against God ever since the fall of man. David, writing a thousand years before John wrote, 3,000 years before today, he asked a question in Psalm 2. And I want you to turn to Psalm 2, maybe put a sheet of paper in there, because it forms the backdrop of all of verse 18. In fact, all of the seventh trumpet is cast against the backdrop of Psalm 2, in addition to the conquest of Canaan. So look with me at Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3, and you'll find all of this familiar language that John is is borrowing from. So David, in about 1000 BC, is looking ahead to what John saw prophetically in about 90 AD, which is looking ahead to what will happen when the seventh trumpet sounds. Psalm 2, verse 1, David asks, why? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and and cast away their cords from us. The unified cry of all of sinful humanity ever since the fall has been, we will not have this God to rule over us. We all want to be our own gravitational center of our own little universes. And it's okay if God wants to orbit around our sun, but we will not bow the knee to him. David recognized that that was true in his day. It was true among all the nations. All of the nations were in rebellion against God. They were raging. They were plotting. They were setting themselves and taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Underline that. His anointed one. Now in David's day, the anointed one meant Israel's king, the one anointed by God to rule over his people. But the Hebrew word there is Mashiach, from from which we get our word Messiah. It's translated by the Greek word Christos, from which we get the word Christ, which is why some of your Bibles say that they've taken their counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. The nations are raging against the Lord and against his anointed one, his Christ. Well, at the end of the age, the nations raging will crescendo to a climax. The people will plot their vain things. The kings and the rulers of the earth will take counsel together and they will march against the Lord and against his Christ. And as we have seen and will continue to see from Revelation, behind it all, stirring up the nations, infiltrating and possessing the hearts of the rulers and the kings of the earth, and underneath and behind and in, all of this is a dragon, a beast, and a false prophet. Stirring up the nations to a destination, and that destination is a final act of apostasy and rebellion and blasphemy, which the book of Revelation identifies as the battle of Armageddon. But they cannot win. They're plotting vain things. Vain. The one who set the universe in orbit is not going to orbit around the sun of the souls of men. He will not do it. He will not orbit around your life. 
Either you will orbit around the gravitational center that is the creator of the world, or you will perish in this battle. There's only one king, there's only one throne, and he will not share it. That's why the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. March against the Lord and his Christ, you will lose. And they shall reign forever and ever. So the nations rage. Second thing that happens, wrath comes. The wrath of God will come. Now again, David foresaw this coming day of wrath. Because he continues in verse 4 of Psalm 2. What's God's response? As the nations are raging and they're plotting and vanity together. And the kings of the earth and the rulers and they're counseling together. How can we overthrow God and his kingdom and his people and his Christ? The Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and he will terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And this king, this anointed one, this Christ, this only begotten son of God is to inherit all the nations of the earth. Psalm 2-7. The son speaks, I will tell of the decree The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. How is he going to possess the earth that doesn't want to be possessed? How is he going to inherit the nations that don't want to be inherited? Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall dash them in pieces like a potter's wheel. Psalm 2.9 is quoted in Revelation 19, by the way. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So the nations will rage, the Lord will laugh, and then he will pour out his wrath upon them. And he will establish his son, the Christ, the King Upon his holy hill. They cannot win. Third. When Christ has returned. And has struck down the nations. And has tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Then the dead will be raised. And the time for judgment will come. Jesus announced this in John chapter 5. He said to the crowds and I say to you. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all, all, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. So when Christ comes, when the king arrives, when the commander of the army of the Lord sets his feet upon the feet of battle, surrounded by the corpses of his enemies whom he has slain with the sword of his mouth, he will plant his flag upon his conquered kingdom and he will issue the command that raises the dead. And all, all, you who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Everyone from Adam and Eve on down the line to the last rebel slain on the field of battle will be raised to life at the thunderous command of the king. And so we read in Revelation 20 that I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's, anyone's, anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. My plea with you is to not allow the veil that lies over this world, the deception, the delusion, the illusion that God is somehow not coming to determine the course of your life. He's coming. He is coming and there is a day appointed from all eternity in which you will die and you will stand before him and the books of your deeds will be opened and every word and thought and deed will be laid bare before him. John Bunyan imagined what this might look like. In the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, who's the everyman character, Having entered through the wicked gate, he sent first to the house of an interpreter to learn seven truths that will aid him on his journey to the celestial city. It's an enchanted house, and in every, in every room that the interpreter takes him into, he sees a scene unfolding before his eyes. And in the seventh and final room, he walks in and he's shown a man in a bed, trembling and sweating for terror and fear having just awoken from a dream. And the interpreter tells the man to tell Christian the content of his dream. The man said, This night, as I was in my sleep, I dreamed, and behold, the heavens grew exceedingly black. Also it thundered and lightning in most fearful ways that it put me in agony. So I looked up in my dreams And I saw the clouds rack at an unusual rate, upon which I heard a great sound of a trumpet, and saw also a man sitting upon a cloud, attended with thousands of heaven. And they were all in flaming fire. Also the heavens were in a burning flame. And I heard then a voice saying, Arise, ye dead, and come to judgment. And with that the rocks rent open and the graves were opened and the dead that were therein came forth. Some of them were exceedingly glad and looked upward and some sought to hide themselves under the mountains. Then I saw the man that sat upon the cloud open a book and bid the world draw near. Yet there was, by reason of a fierce flame which issued out and came from before him, a a convenient distance between him and them as between the judge and the prisoner at the bar. I heard it also proclaimed to them that attended on the man that who sat on the cloud, gathered together the tares, the chaff, and stubble, and cast them into the burning lake. And with that, the bottomless pit opened just roundabouts where I stood. And out of the mouth of which there came in an abundant manner smoke and coals of fire and hideous noises. And it was also said to the same persons, gather my wheat into the garner. And with that I saw many caught up and carried away into the clouds, but I was left behind. 
I also sought to hide myself. But I could not, for the man who sat upon the cloud kept his eye ever upon me. My sins came into my mind, my conscience did accuse me on every side, and upon this I awaked from my sleep. Are you prepared for that day? It's coming. It's not just a dream. It's coming. So take heed to yourself, beloved, that you not be on the wrong side when the day of judgment arrives. Fourth, when the day of judgment does come, the faithful will have their reward. The servants of God who are described here as prophets and saints and those who fear God's name, both small and great, they will receive their everlasting inheritance. Everyone who has taken refuge in the Son who by faith have found in him grace and forgiveness of sins and a new heart and new life, who've been indwelt by the Spirit and find there the will and the ability to keep his commandments, will enter into their appointed joy. Can I read you one more passage from the end of Pilgrim's Progress? At the end of their journey, Christian and another pilgrim whose name is Hopeful, they pass through the river of death, and they stand before the gates of splendor. They stand before the celestial city gleaming with gold, with refulgent beams of light proceeding, not from outside, but from within. And their arrival is announced from within the gates. These are pilgrims come from the city of destruction for the love that they bear to the king of this place. And then the pilgrims gave in unto each man his his certificate, which they had received in the beginning. It's a certificate they received at the cross when the burden fell from their back and it certified that they were real. They were true. They weren't trespassers. They weren't thieves and robbers that come in from some other way. They'd been through the gate and they'd been to the cross. They were genuine and they turned it in. It's the evidence. It's the evidence of their reality and the genuineness of their faith. And they handed it in. And and their certificates were carried in to the king who, when he had read them, said, Where are the men? To whom it was answered, They are standing outside the gate. And the king then commanded them to open the gate, that the righteous nation, said he, which keeps the truth, shall enter in. And Bunyan says, Now I saw in my dream that these two men went in at the gate, and lo, as they entered, they were transfigured. And they had raiment put on that shone like gold. And there also that met them with harps and crowns and gave to them the harps to praise withal and the crowns in token of honor. And then I heard in my dream that all the bells in the city rang again for joy. And it was said to them, enter into the joy of your Lord. And I also heard the men themselves that they sang with a loud voice saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. That's the picture of the reward of the faithful that will be filled out in the pages to come. The faithful and only the faithful. The faithful who have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and because they did not love their lives even when faced with death. Finally, the destroyers of the earth will be destroyed when the world comes to its end. The destroyers of the earth could be a reference to all the wicked in general, the faithless, the wicked, in which case the dead which are raised and judged would be divided into two categories, the servants of God, the prophets, saints, 
those who fear his name, both great and small. And then underneath that, the destroyers of the earth. Or it could be a more specific reference to the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet who had stirred up the nations into their fomenting rage. Revelation 20 and verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I think they're the destroyers of the earth. One more detail catches John's eye. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. It was seen. Which means there's no veil. The Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple and there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. I'll tell you what I think is going on here. I think what we are about to witness before we're whisked away into another journey because we're not going to get to see it until Revelation 21 is what will be announced then in verse 3 of Revelation 21 that I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is among men. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And later in chapter 21, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. The temple was the dwelling place of God in the midst of his people. It's what it represented. The tabernacle was God's house in the midst of his people in the wilderness of this world. In particular, behind the veil where the cherubim were positioned atop the Ark of the Covenant, atop the mercy seat where there hovered the Shekinah glory of God, which was the manifest presence of their covenant Lord, the manifestation of His glory. It represented His presence, His dwelling among His people. But in the new heaven and the new earth, in the new Canaan, there will be no temple and there will be no Ark of the Covenant because what the temple and the Ark of the Covenant represented was the manifest presence of God in the midst of His people and in the new creation. God Himself will dwell in their midst. The whole earth will be His temple. In the days of Joshua, when the seventh trumpet sounded and the city of Jericho fell and the people of Israel marched into the land of promise. They carried before them the ark of the Lord, signifying that this new land which they were inheriting was a land in which God would dwell in the midst of His covenant people. And what John's saying here in 11.19 is that when the saints march into Zion, into the new Canaan, God's coming with us to dwell among us. That's what John sees, or rather is about to see. The doors of the heavenly temple are flung open. The Ark of the Covenant, signifying God's presence in the midst of His people, is about to come down to earth in the midst of great demonstrations of His sovereign power. And suddenly, he sees in heaven a woman. Revelation chapter 12, and we're in a new vision cycle. So we've seen... John's view of the end of the world. And we've seen David's view of the end of the world in Psalm 2. And so I thought we would conclude this morning the way that David concludes in the second Psalm. Psalm 2 and verse 10. Here's, here's David's 
conclusion. Here's his exhortation to the nations that are raging and the kings of the earth that are plotting and they don't want God to reign over them. He says, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Be warned and be wise. It's my exhortation to you. Be warned and be wise. Wisdom responds in this way. To let these terrifying descriptions of judgment drive you to the Lord in fear. To rejoice with trembling and cause you to kiss the Son. Which means to worship Him. To pay homage to Him. To submit to Him as your sovereign Lord and King. And I leave you with this blessing. Blessed are all who take refuge in Christ from the wrath to come. It's coming. It is coming for you. There is only one hiding place. There is only one rock of refuge. There is only one king who will reign forever on the throne of Zion and it is not you. It is Jesus. Take refuge in Him while there is still time. First Baptist Nixa, be warned and be wise. My Father, I ask that wisdom would reign in our midst today. By Your grace, I pray that we would find the terrors of your judgment to be terrible. I pray that we would find the scenes of your impending wrath to be fearful. And I pray that we would heed the words of David. Words echoed throughout scripture in different various ways serve the Lord with fear, to rejoice, to rejoice, not a servile bowing, hoping that he doesn't destroy me, but a, a new heart created joy that I am not king and that Jesus is. Rejoice with trembling and kiss the Son, taking refuge in Him and in Him alone. Oh God, we need your sovereign grace to teach our hearts to fear. Fear the wrath of God which is to come. And the same grace to relieve those fears. As Newton wrote in his famous hymn, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Do that for us today. That we would not see this as the mythological comprehensions of a pre-modern prophet. 
we would see these as a revelation from heaven to induce repentance and faith and salvation. May grace teach our hearts to fear and may grace in the crucified Christ relieve those fears as we seek our refuge in Christ the rock. In his atoning blood which cleanses for every sin in his spotless righteousness which clothes us clothes our shame with garments of salvation may anyone here any one of you without Christ and you find yourself as it were standing naked and ashamed before the eyes of God's judgment throne flee flee to Jesus, kiss the Son who died upon the cross to atone for your sins and offers to give you His very own righteousness and to transform your heart and to make it new so that you may rejoice in trembling and serve the Lord with fear. Flee from the wrath that is to come and flee to the rock of salvation, who is Christ. You do that now. In these moments as we take the supper, you call upon the name of the Lord, and you will find Him mighty to save.